I think one, one thing that unites all of us, whether young or old, whatever our age is, is a common experience that we all have had, and that's the experience of fear. We've all experienced being afraid of something, whether that's when we were little, we were afraid of the dark, afraid of the monster under the bed, the monster in the closet, the boogeyman, whatever it is. Uh, we all have experienced that kind of fear, right? And as we grow up, we, we still experience some, some fears like that, fear of snakes or wasps or lizards or whatever it is, fear of heights, fear of being in claustrophobia. We all have those kinds of fears. As we grow older, um, experiencing a little bit of a deeper level of fear, fear of disappointing somebody, fear of losing somebody, fear of not measuring up to what I feel like I'm supposed to be doing. I have pressures from work or school or relationships that I feel like I have to, to live up to, I have to meet this market, so I have a fear of letting somebody down, a fear of not meeting expectations, a fear of um, being embarrassed or ashamed or whatever it is. These experiences of fear that we all have, there's not, if we're honest, there's not a single one of us who hasn't experienced fear in some way, shape, or form in our life, whether it's a big way or a little way. We all share this common experience of fear. And what fear does is that, I think by nature, it's like a, a trepidation in the face of the thing that I'm afraid of. So when I'm, a, I'm experiencing the thing that I'm afraid of, my natural reaction is to not go towards that thing, right? So if I'm claustrophobic, I see a very enclosed room, I'm not going to go in that room, right? If, I, if I'm afraid of snakes and there's a snake right in front of me, I'm not going to walk towards the snake. I'm going to run away from the snake. Right? Fear, it prevents me from moving forward, but in fact causes me to not move. If I'm afraid of heights, I will never go skydiving. Right? That's the last thing I want to do if I'm afraid of heights. Fear stops me from moving forward with something. It holds me back from doing something. We have, we've all have had bigger little experiences of that. There's a, there's a use of the word fear in the faith, though, um, that I think it has a different meaning, but we apply that very same meaning to it. And that's the phrase, fear of the Lord. One of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is fear of the Lord. And I think we can take that a lot of times as literally a fear of God. I'm afraid of God for whatever reason, right? So I have, I'm a, I have a fear of letting God down. I have a fear of maybe the punishment that he might have for me. I know all the ways that I sin, all the ways that I screw up and I mess up, and I have a fear that God is going to, to punish me. I fear that I'm going to let him down. fear that I'm going to disappoint him. A fear that I'm not going to meet the expectation that I feel like God has for me. And so when I'm afraid of something or somebody, I go the opposite direction. Or at least I don't go forward. When I have a fear of the Lord, that... With, with that literally means that like I'm afraid of God, that stops me from going forward. When in actuality, a real fear of the Lord ought to do the exact opposite. See this in the, in the, in the Samaritan woman. I think this plays out very beautifully, the story with the woman at the well. She encounters Jesus. Now this woman, living a life of fear, living a life that's marked by fear, marked by shame. So what she's doing is she's doing everything that she can to not encounter somebody. She carries the shame of all that is on her heart, all that we heard in the gospel that Jesus brings up. She's going to the well at the time when nobody else would. She's trying to avoid everybody. She puts herself in a place of isolation because she doesn't want anybody to come close out of the fear. She recedes back as far as she could. She puts everybody else away as far as she possibly can because of that fear. 
Jesus sees that, and Jesus comes into that. The verse right before this, one of my favorite things about this passage is actually the verse right before the gospel started, where it says Jesus was in Jerusalem, he was heading north to the region of Galilee, and it says that he had to pass through Samaria. Jesus, geographically speaking, did not have to pass through Samaria. Jesus, there were plenty of other routes that he, would, that he could have taken, and probably everybody else would have taken, because like they said in the gospel, Samaritans and Jews don't get along. We don't go to the same places, we don't do anything together. So a Jew going from the south to the north would have gone around, did not have to go through there. It's not like to get to Lockport, I have to go through Raceland. It's not like that. He could have gone a thousand other ways. But he could have gone another way to go around the region of Samaria. But the gospel said that he had to go through Samaria. Which means he had to. But not because he physically had to pass through the region to get to where he was going. He had to go to Samaria because he had to encounter this woman. Jesus knew that this woman was there, that this woman needed him to come in, and so he had to go to meet this woman in an encounter. And as Jesus comes in, look and notice what the woman does. She pushes back, initially. And she brings up every reason why they shouldn't even be in a conversation in the first place. Look, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, you're a woman, what are you doing here? You don't have a bucket. Like, why are we even engaging in this conversation at all? She pushes back on all the reasons why they ought to have been separated. They ought to not even be engaged in a relationship at all. And everyone's kind of, everyone throughout the gospel is surprised that they're even engaging in this. It shows the force, of, the force that fear can have in pushing back when God desires to come. So she lists up all the things why, like, Jesus should not even be paying any attention to her. That's what she wants. Jesus, he, she sees God coming close and she pushes back. Because of that fear, the false fear of the Lord. What should happen with the fear of the Lord, a real fear of the Lord, because what fear of the Lord is, it's a recognition of who God is and what he desires to do in my life and what that does in my heart as I see who God is. Another, like an awe at God. Not in a fear of sense of being afraid, but a fear at, at, at being awed at who God is and what he desires to do. And I'm pretty sure I've used this image before, but it's the one that immediately comes to mind. I think about what, what my reaction should be to God's coming in. And it's those videos you see of when a military mom or dad or brother, sister, husband, wife, who has been gone, comes back to surprise the person, right? Whoever's in the video, the unsuspecting person, has a thousand things on their mind, probably, they're at work or they're at school. They're worried about all these things. They have all these stresses. They're worried about all the daily things of life that pull them in a thousand different directions. But as soon as they see that person, none of that matters anymore. In an instant, all of that fades away. Whatever fear they might have been carrying instantly in a moment doesn't matter anymore. Whatever they felt about themselves is gone because they're so enraptured by the person who they were longing for the person who's such a big part of their life is now present, coming into their life, and all they can do, all everything fades away except that person, and they're so focused on that person that that's where they run with everything that they have. That's what a real encounter with the Lord, a real fear of the Lord leads to. Not a pushing away, but a real fear of the Lord actually leads to a type of fearlessness 
all the fears that are there fade away because God desires to come. God desires to enter into the reality of my life in a particular way. And that fearlessness doesn't mean that like I'm confident in myself to come before God and like I finally got my, my stuff together, I got this and that or the other, and I feel like I can confidently come before God because I'm resting on all the good things that I've done. The fearlessness before the Lord has nothing to do with me, but everything to do with Him. I have nothing that I can offer God, because everyone, anyone who thinks their life is together is pretending that their life is together. All I have is my weakness that I come before the Lord with, and in His infinite goodness, He desires to come and to meet me in that. I think a lot of times we push away from God because I feel like I can't love God good enough. I can't do this whole faith thing well. I fail every single time. I can't meet the mark. And so because of that, I, I, I settle with keeping God over there. I settle with a little bit of the distance, and I push away, or at least I hesitate, every time God desires to push in a little bit more. Every time we encounter God coming close to somebody in the Scriptures, that's what happens. God calls Moses to lead the people out of Israel. Moses says, you have got the wrong God. I, you want me to go before Pharaoh and do this? You must be crazy. Every time God calls a prophet, whether that's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, list, every single prophet who's called by God pushes back. They say, look, God, you have the wrong guy. I can't, I can't go to preach to these people. I'm just like a farmer. I'm just this or that. I don't have the skills needed to go and proclaim these, your words to these people. When Jesus calls Peter, Peter's initial response is, Lord, depart from me. I'm just a sinful man. Peter didn't see what Jesus saw inside of him. And so the Samaritan woman does the exact same thing. Jesus comes, and the woman pushes away. These are all the reasons why I need to be separated from you, Jesus. Don't come, don't come any closer. The reality is that there's a little bit of truth in that, that reaction. Because it's true. We are never going to worship God the way that, we, that he ought to be worshipped. We are never going to live the Christian life to the extent that we're, we're, we're meeting this unrealistic, invisible mark. I'm never going to be able to come to God perfect, totally confident in all that I've done, resting on all my abilities, all the things that I'm doing, and be satisfied with that. I'm never going to be able to impress God with, all, with, with, with the way that I'm living my life. The good news, though, is that that's not, what he does. That's, not, that's not what he wants. That's not what he desires. He doesn't want to be impressed by all the good things that we're doing. We're not, he doesn't want us to try to justify ourselves before him. He doesn't want us to try to, to come before him with all these good reasons why we ought to be able to come before him. He just wants us to come before him. And as we put all these things, it's almost like the things that block us from an actual authentic relationship with the Lord, because if I'm not coming before God as I am, that is the only way I can come before God. So if I don't come before God as I am, then what, I'm, I'm not actually coming before God, but I'm, like, I'm putting on a mask before Him. I'm trying to, to come on with an image that I feel like I ought to be, instead of actually coming before Him. Jesus desires more than anything just for us to simply come before Him. And I can do that without fear, 
Not because I'm looking at me, but because I'm looking at Him. I see His goodness. I see His desire. And that allows all the other things to fade away because that's the only thing that matters. That's the only thing that satisfies what my heart is actually longing for. Because the reality is that all the things that, we, that I'm trying to, to juggle or whatever, like he knows where we're at. He knows where you are right now. He knows the things that are on your heart right now at this very moment. And like I know we've heard that before, but like hear it anew tonight, like he really does know. He sees it. He desires to enter and he desires to push right into that very spot. Just like he did with the woman at the well. He knew exactly where she needed to be loved, and that's where he put his finger. That's where he asked his question. That's where he was pointed, because he knew exactly where that woman needed to encounter him. Jesus doesn't want us to hide those parts from him. In fact, he's drawn to those parts. He's drawn to that very thing. He does the same thing to us that he did for the woman at the well, the woman of Samaria. He's drawn right to that spot. And meeting him there, meeting him in that spot, encountering him in that moment, that brings, we see the transformation that it had on that woman. She encountered someone in the very thing she didn't want anyone to know about, the thing she didn't want to talk about. And notice how her fear, almost in an instant, faded away. She was suddenly able to go before the entire town with boldness, proclaiming what had happened to her. All the fear that her life was defined by in a moment was gone. The encounter with the Lord in that spot in our hearts finally removes the fear because I can finally breathe out and rest because I don't have to pretend. I don't have to juggle these things or have this image that I have to hide or exhaust myself in trying to live a certain kind of life. I can come in authenticity and in peace before God and allow him to encounter me there without the conditions, without trying to hide anything, and just to live in that security. Not focusing on me, not focusing on all the things, but totally focused on the one who's desiring to come. Every time we encounter the Lord, whether it's a prayer, whether it's a mass, it's transformative. It ought to be, I, ought not, I can't encounter God and not leave here the same as I was before that encounter. We should all be being transformed every time we encounter God. That woman left her jar and went out. She, she left renewed. The encounter with love doesn't leave us where we're at, but inspires us to continue to strive for something higher. Not out of shame or not out of accusation or not out of expectation, but out of an invitation of love and, and the, the desire that we have, the response to being loved, in those moments, in those spots of our hearts and in our life. I want to leave you tonight with a little bit of homework. The book of the Psalms is a book, it's, it's a collection of Psalms, kind of right in the middle of the Bible. It's a collection of prayers that are addressed to God. All kinds of prayers. Prayers of joy, prayers of sorrow, prayers of all. It's every, every single kind of emotion is contained in the book of the Psalms. There's one particular psalm, the short psalm. It's like one of the shortest psalms in the whole book. It's like two sentences long. Psalm 131. What Psalm 131 basically says 
is that, God, I am nothing great. I don't go after these big things. I don't have these big ideas. I'm not that great of a person. But I set myself in peace in your arms. I rest in your arms, and I hope in you alone. My explanation of the psalm was longer than the psalm itself. The homework is to sit with that psalm, Psalm 131. 131. Sit with that psalm. God, I have nothing great before you, but I just come to put myself at rest in your arms because you are my hope. Encountering Jesus is not about us. It's not about making sure we're good to come before him. It's about acknowledging our weakness, coming before the Lord in our weakness, and allowing, us to, and allowing ourselves to be seen and loved by him in that moment. So we pray the rest of this Mass as we receive him in the Eucharist, as we encounter God tonight in our weakness, let's leave here transformed. Not because of us, but because of the goodness of the God who desires to come into our life tonight. Amen.